0: Hey, Lake City I want to say hi to you today and thank you so much for joining us and I hope this isn't too much of a disappointment but we're actually going to be kicking off Psalm 23 next weekend and this weekend I'm going to be finishing up our hope rising series and the sermon title today is called our ultimate hope we're in Luke chapter 12 but I want to begin with a story so I read a story this week on ABC News about a family that traveled for 30 miles every saturday into town to buy a powerball ticket the article was entitled in tough times lottery offers hope so to be clear from the outset I, i'm strongly against gambling in any form including the lottery but because of this sermon series on hope the article caught my attention and it talked how about how many people in hard times are looking sort of looking to the lottery to lift them up it's that old dream of getting rich quick the gal who was interviewed uh, for the article put it like this i i look to it as a shot a chance a a ray of hope in my life well i want to tell you today about something a whole lot better than two dollars worth of hope and it's called the blessed hope When Paul wrote to his friend Titus, he said this, he said, we're looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and savior, Jesus Christ. The blessed hope is that Jesus promised that he was going to come back for those, for all of us who believe in him. And that is what I want to discuss with you today. This truth that our ultimate hope as Christians is in Jesus Christ and his return. So as I mentioned last week, I plan to spend two weeks in Luke 12 in this study of Jesus' words on hope and the peace that that gives us in uncertain times. Now, most of you know that I love Bible prophecy. After all, 27% of the Bible is prophetic. You might also remember that one of my hobbies is studying prophecy and current events. And with all that's going on in our world today, it's only natural for people to wonder if we're getting near the return of christ in fact according to a newsweek poll a few years ago 55 percent of americans believe that the faithful will be taken up to heaven in the rapture and there is even more of an expectation today that jesus could be coming very soon so i want to ask you a question do you believe that we are that generation that will see the return of jesus christ Many Christians believe that we are, and I certainly do. And if that is the case, then you should be vitally interested in my subject today because it's about our ultimate hope, which is called the rapture. So Luke 12 is this chapter of hope. And if you were with us last week, you might remember that that Jesus spoke to us about not being anxious and not being worried. And the very next subject that Jesus shifts to is about being watchful and ready for his return so those two themes go together for one of the best ways to conquer worry is to understand our future and also because worry and anxiety is often connected with being ensnared by the world and and by getting our focus off of christ and onto material possessions but when we focus on jesus and his return for us it just has this way of reducing our worries about our lives here. And so that's what our Lord pivots to next in this address to the crowds. And it's this reminder for us that our ultimate hope is the return of Christ. Our ultimate hope is the return of Christ. And we're gonna begin with the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 12, beginning at verse 35. So Luke 12, 35 says this. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Would you pray with me as we uh, dive into God's word together? Lord, we thank you for your holy word. And we declare, Father, you are hallowed. And we want to hallow and declare how worthy you are and your name is. And Lord, we, we love you and we worship you. And we ask, God, that you would speak to us in your word tonight, your holy word. And, God, you'd give us understanding of this amazing passage. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So our text today begins with this. Jesus exhorts us to be prepared for his return. To be prepared for his return. And Jesus gives two word pictures in verse 35. And both of these word pictures emphasize the very same point, and that is to be ready, to be prepared for Christ's return. So stay dressed for action is literally let your loins be girded. So we don't talk like that anymore. But in that day, everyone wore these long robes and they were an hindrance if you needed to move around quickly or to so be free to do work. So if a person wanted to run or to do some work, he'd he'd take that long robe and he'd tuck it under his sash, his belt, and it would allow him to move much more freely. And the verb here indicates this state of perpetual readiness for action. The second word picture that Jesus uses is keep your lamps burning, your lamps burning. And that was spoken in a day when there was no electricity. There were no electricity street lights or city lights outside and there were no flashlights or night lights to help you find your way around the house in the middle of the night so if you were expecting a visitor to your home after dark you'd keep an oil lamp burning so that when they knocked on the door you'd be able to see your way to the door and and uh, let them in and help them find their way in your home and again the idea is the same it's to be prepared for your master's coming And next, Jesus uses two illustrations about the importance of being ready, about being prepared. And the illustration number one is of a wedding. The first illustration Jesus uses is of a wedding. Now, most people love weddings, right? So did they. So listen to what Jesus spoke of in verse 36. He says, and be like men who are waiting for their masters to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. So Jewish weddings were typically held at night and they were followed by a wedding feast, which often lasted up to seven days the bridegroom's servants would be on notice they would be back at the house they'd be on notice though to, that they would uh be re- so they would be ready to let the master and his new bride in the home when they were back when they came home so they were to be ready at any time the new husband certainly would not want to be kept waiting at the door with his new bride You see, in that day, the length of the wedding feast was not exactly predetermined. So such feasts could last for a few days, often up to a full week. And so the bridegroom's servants would need to be prepared when they heard their master arrive at the house and knock on the door. They had to be ready to open the door and serve them. That meant that the bridegroom could come home from the wedding feast in the middle of the night. When you least expected and they would still need to be ready so here's illustration number two the second illustration is of a thief the illustration of a thief and that's in verse 39 let's read that together but know this that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming he would not have left his house to be broken into so the second way Jesus illustrated this truth about watchfulness was this, this story about a thief breaking into a house in the middle of the night. If the home homeowner had known that the thief was coming, well, he wouldn't have allowed his home to be broken into. Obviously, he would have been ready and waiting for that thief. And then Jesus states the application of both of those illustrations clearly in verse 40. This is what he says. You also must be ready... For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So our primary response, Jesus says, is readiness. We should be ready for whenever he comes back. And to be ready means to be watchful and alert. It's the opposite of being caught by surprise. That's the attitude Jesus wants us to have as we anticipate his return for us, His return is going to be like a thief in the night or like an unexpected return of a groom from his wedding feast. And we're to be prepared for whenever he comes. That, the, our ultimate hope is that very thing, the return of Jesus for us. By the way, in my reading about this uh, passage today, I came across some information about the surprise element of a Jewish wedding uh, that was new to me. And I want to share that with you now. What I read was this, that when the father of a groom deemed that the bridal chamber was ready, he would give his approval for the groom to go and claim his bride. And the arrival of the groom at the bride's house signaled his intention, the groom's intention to take the bride, to take her as his wife. Now, typically, this abduction, as some called it, uh, would occur in the middle of the night. That was the most common time. They'd like to surprise her in the middle of the night. The big moment had arrived, and the, the bridegroom was, was more than ready, we can be sure, and he and his young men would set out in the night making every attempt to completely surprise his bride. And that's the romantic part of a Jewish wedding. All Jewish brides were basically stolen, okay? Okay the Jews had a special understanding of a woman's heart. What a thrill for her to be abducted and carried off into the night, not by a stranger, but by someone who loved her so much that he paid a very high price for her. And although abduction was considered romantic in that culture, completely surprising the bride by bursting into her house in the middle of the night wasn't considered romantic. And so upon arrival at the house of the bride the groom and his party would announce their arrival. They'd shout out, Behold, here's the bridegroom. Sometimes they'd even blow the shofar, the traditional trumpet made of the ram's horn, and announce, Behold, the bridegroom is here. And of course, all of that helps explain the significance of Jesus' words in the parable of the ten virgins over in Matthew 25 when they shout, Behold, the bridegroom is here. And it also helps us understand the words of Christ here in Luke chapter 12, verse 40. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And that's pretty fascinating background to help us understand what Jesus is getting at. Well, that brings us now to the subject of the rapture. And since there is a good deal of confusion about the rapture, I'm going to take a few minutes to explain what the Bible teaches about the rapture. So sometimes I I hear people say, well, things like this, well, the, the word rapture isn't even in the Bible. And the question is, is that a problem or is it not? Well, it isn't a problem for me because the word Bible isn't even in the Bible and neither is the word Trinity. So who cares if the word itself isn't there because the teaching or the idea and the doctrine clearly is there for us to understand. You say it is, well, where is it? The word in Greek is harpazo, harpazo. And that appears 13 times in the New Testament. And that Greek word is translated to snatch, to catch up, or to take away suddenly. So you kind of get the idea, right? It means to grab something suddenly, harpazo. You see, when Jerome translated the New Testament from Greek into Latin around 400 A.D., it became that Latin version, what we call the Vulgate, became the Bible of the church until the Reformation, so about a thousand years. And he translated harpazo to be caught up by the Latin word rapturo, or rapere, which means to catch away or to snatch up. So when people say, well, the word rapture isn't in the Bible, I guess it depends which version you're reading. True, if you read the ESV or the NIV, you don't see the word rapture, but If you were to pick up the Latin Vulgate, it is absolutely there. It's right there in the text. So I want to point out for you that there are three primary texts in the New Testament that teach the doctrine of the rapture. And those key texts are John 14, 1 Corinthians 15, and 1 Thessalonians 4. Those passages teach us the most about the rapture of the church. We're going to be reading from each of those today, but I wanted to highlight those for you so you can go back and read them for yourselves on your own. So I'm going to just cover very briefly with you five basic facts that we should all understand about the rapture. What is it? First of all, it's the truth that Jesus is coming again for his own. He's coming again for his church. In John 14 that's the first passage we're going to look at jesus didn't develop fully the doctrine of the rapture but he introduced the subject and he sort of set the table for the apostle paul to do so later so let's beginning let's begin by reading the words of our savior in john 14 beginning at verse one here's what jesus said let not your hearts be troubled believe in god believe also in me in my father's house are many rooms If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So Jesus spoke these words in the upper room on the night before his crucifixion. After the Last Supper, this is what he said to his disciples. I'm going away. I'm going to leave you but I don't want your hearts to be troubled. And he promised to return for them and to return for all of his disciples, including you and me and all who believe in him. Jesus didn't tell them all the details that night, but he revealed those details later to the Apostle Paul to pass on to them and to us. And so we turn now to the writings of Paul for the rest of the story. Here's the second fact we need to understand. Believers will receive glorified bodies. Believers at the rapture are going to receive their glorified bodies. I want you to listen to how Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul writes, "...behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable." And we shall be changed for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And he goes on and describes more, but we're going to stop right there and just emphasize one point that we're going to be receiving these glorified bodies. There'll be a loud trumpet sound and our mortal bodies are going to be transformed into glorified bodies that are made to live forever. Anybody here interested in a resurrection type of body? An immortal body? Not only equipped to last forever, but no more sickness whatsoever. No more worries about disease. No more pain. No more quarantines. That sounds pretty good to me. How about you? By the way, when will this happen? That's the next thing I want to consider with you. And we don't know the exact day or hour. But we do believe that the rapture is the next prophetic event in God's calendar. The rapture is the next prophetic event in God's prophetic calendar. So actually there are different views on the timing of the rapture. But I don't see this as something that needs to divide believers because godly people have come to different opinions on the timing of it. But I believe personally that the view that best fits the evidence of scripture is the one that holds to this, that the rapture takes place just before the tribulation. And this view is called the pre-trib rapture view. And that would mean that the rapture of the church is the very next event in God's prophetic calendar. That also means it could happen today. It could happen at any moment, even before we get done with this worship service today. If you're interested, by the way, in hearing more about the different views as to the timing, the when of the rapture, when it could take place, I'm going to be giving you some resources at the end of this sermon tonight so that uh, you can get some more detailed information about that if you want to study that more. Here's the fourth fact We will be forever with the Lord we will be forever with the Lord at the rapture. And beloved, this is the heart of our blessed hope. We're going to be with our Savior forever. In 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul puts it like this. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. And so we will always be with the Lord. I love what Dwight L. Moody used to say about this. This is what he said about heaven. He said, It's it's not the jeweled walls, it's not the pearly gates that are going to make heaven so attractive. It's just being with God. Being with God. That's why heaven is more than a what or a where. It's really a whom. You and I will be where he is. We'll be forever with the lord and then finally here's number five and it's a reminder that this is a comfort to us as believers it's a comfort for believers this revelation about the rapture was given to paul to give to us to comfort us and to encourage us and that's why in his letter to titus paul calls this our blessed hope i want you to listen to what paul How Paul describes it here in 1 Thessalonians 4.18. Here Paul says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another with these words. And that word encourage means to comfort or to strengthen or to admonish or to console. So the doctrine of the rapture is a great comfort to us who are believers in Jesus Christ. You say, why do we need to be comforted anyway? Well, because God knows that this world can be a distressing place to live at times. In fact, Jesus told his disciples in that same night, he said, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world, Jesus said. That's good news. And as we get closer to the end, we can expect things will be more and more troublesome in our world. And so one thing that we need to remember is this things aren't falling apart they're falling into place things aren't falling apart right now they're actually falling right into place and i don't take credit for that saying i believe i first heard that from a bible prophecy teacher named amir sarfati and the point of that is this sometimes things sort of feel uncertain in the world even scary at times But if we know what the Bible says about the end times, we won't need to feel afraid. Instead, we'll have the confidence that God has a sovereign plan. God has a sovereign plan, and knowing what the Bible says about the future can help us put current events into their proper perspective, because we see how they fit into God's plan. For example, in Daniel 9, we learn about this seven-year period called the Tribulation, when God is going to really shake the world and bring Israel to faith in Jesus as their Messiah. And right before the tribulation is when I believe the rapture of the church is going to take place. And then after the rapture of the church, it appears to me that the uh, war of Ezekiel 38 and 39 is going to occur. By the way, one of the fascinating things uh, about current events is that Russia and Iran and Turkey are all allies today which is prophesied in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And uh, so things are set up right now for Ezekiel's prophecy to be fulfilled at any time. Jesus also talked about pestilences that would be one of the signs of the end times. And if the coronavirus is not a pestilence, I don't know what it is. Listen to what Jesus then went on to say. Jesus said this in Luke 21. He said, but when these things begin to take place, all these signs of the end times that he gave us, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near, your salvation, your redemption is drawing near. He says, wake up. He's coming soon. Listen, beloved, God has a plan and he's revealed that plan to us, not to make us afraid, But so that we'll live by faith when we see these things come to pass. And also to assure us that God is in control. He is absolutely in control. So I don't know about you, but the last couple of months have felt like anything but someone's in control, right? You and I certainly feel like things are a little out of control. But I want to assure you, God not only has a plan, he is in control. And he's bringing everything into position for his plan to be fulfilled. I want you to listen to how God speaks about this in Isaiah 46. This is what God spoke through the prophet Isaiah. He said, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, My purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. God made known from the beginning of time, what the end was going to be like. And he did that because he has a plan and his plan and his purposes are sure and he's working them out. So only God knows the future exactly and only he can tell us about it, therefore. And he lays it out for us in his word, everything that he has planned and he did that even before it began to unfold. And it reminds us, It's a comforting reminder he is in control and that we can trust him even when things feel a little out of control. Well, all of this begs the question, so what? How should we wait in the meantime? And what I find is that some Christians are very focused and excited for the rapture and others don't give a whole lot of thought about it at all. Well, does the Bible say much about how we should wait for the return of our Savior? Well, yes, in fact, it does. It says a lot about it. And I'd suggest for you that there are actually three practical implications for us about how to wait for him. First, we're to wait with eager anticipation. He wants us to have an eager anticipation for his return. The Apostle Paul wrote these words while under arrest in Rome in this is what he wrote to his friends in in Philippi. He said, "For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ." Notice the words eagerly wait. That's how the New Testament speaks of our enthusiastic anticipation for the return of Christ. We're to eagerly wait for our savior. So sometimes when we think about waiting, we think of it as more of sort of this passive endeavor. But the Greek word that Paul used here has this much more active force. And that word he used, translated eagerly wait, literally means to look way out. It's it's the picture of a guard or a watchman on the walls of a city whose eyes are sort of fixed on the horizon looking for the rescuing forces that are coming. This eager anticipation is nothing less than this active fastening of our gaze and our attention on a dearly desired end. One picture that comes to my mind is that of a dog waiting for his master to come home so he can play. So we've all seen that probably, haven't we? We, we had a dog in Colorado years ago whose name was Houdini. And Houdini also... Uh, couldn't contain himself whenever we came home. I mean, he would be jumping and he would be barking and he'd be bumping up against our legs and whacking you with his tail. Basically, he was just this big pain because he was just so happy to see you. And it was as if he was watching and uh, looking for us to drive into the driveway because he just couldn't wait to be with us. And that's sort of the picture of a believer's eager anticipation of Christ. The Bible tells us that we're living in the last days and that our Savior is coming soon. And no matter what distractions we face, we must have this steady focus on that day and his coming for us. So, does it matter if we wait eagerly or not? Actually, it does. I want you to listen to how Paul spoke of the reward that God will give to those who wait with eagerness. This is 2 Timothy 4.8. Paul writes, And now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. That crown of righteousness, that reward God has for us for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. That's God's reward for those who eagerly await the rapture. So here's a second practical suggestion about how we should wait. We're also to wait with joy. One of the byproducts of our eager anticipation is joy. Have you ever seen a mob of people waiting for their favorite band or maybe their favorite athlete or team or some celebrity to make their grand entrance at some event well if you have you've not seen a passive audience or a disinterested bored group of people typically you see people sort of hanging all over themselves pressing on one another up on their tiptoes craning their necks just trying to get the first shot the first view of their favorite celebrity or whoever it is And just before that, a person arrives, almost without fail, you see everyone in the group smiling. You see them bubbling over with delight at the prospect of seeing that person or that group that they're so eagerly awaiting. And how much more should that be true of us? We await a savior of infinitely greater fame, of infinitely greater worth than all of Earth's celebrities combined. And he is coming, beloved. He is almost here. And how great our joy should be about that. I love how Peter expressed it in 1 Peter 1. Peter wrote these words. He said, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. He says there's inexpressible joy Even though you don't see him yet, we're waiting for him with inexpressible joy. And finally, this eager anticipation should also motivate us to live with obedience, to live with obedience. Jesus repeatedly told his disciples that there'd be a blessing or a reward for those who are ready and faithfully living for him when he shows up. That's what we're looking at in Luke 12. And friend, I believe the Lord is coming soon. We don't know exactly when he's coming. Jesus said, no one knows the day or the hour. Therefore, it's incumbent on us to be alert at all times. I like the way Charles Spurgeon put it in one of his sermons on the coming of the Lord. This is what Charles Spurgeon wrote. He said, Jesus is coming. He is even now on the way. Every moment of time, every event of providence is bringing him nearer. Blessed are those servants who shall not be sleeping when he comes, nor wandering from their posts of duty. Let us wait with patience, steadfast, for Jesus is coming, and in him is our sure hope. In him is our sure hope. As I wrap up today, I want to talk about three steps of application. Next steps is what we call them, and the first one is this. I will study to understand the rapture. I will study to understand the rapture. So God has a plan and he's revealed that plan so that we know what's coming. It takes the fear out of the things that are happening in the world around us, just knowing that he's in control and he has a purpose in it all. And the rapture is an important part of God's plan because it's going to have a direct impact on all of us. If you'd like to learn more about what the bible says about the rapture i want to suggest some resources for you and the first one these are on your sermon notes by the way you can find them there as well the first one is a sermon i preached a couple years ago on july 15th 2018 you can find that posted on our church website which is lc3.com lc3.com go to the media uh, button and then video sermons And then you're looking for this one again. You'll have to write this down. July 15th, 2008. Another good resource I I recommend is a book. My favorite book on prophecy is called The End by Mark Hitchcock. And in that book, in in Mark's book called The End, pages 121 to 201, 80 pages deal with the subject of the rapture. And then my favorite website for end times prophecies is is called beholdisrael.org beholdisrael.org it's Amir Sarfati's website he's a fantastic Bible prophecy teacher and I want to encourage you to go to beholdisrael.org here's next step number two I will live like I believe Jesus is coming back I will live like I truly believe it okay the return of Jesus is our ultimate hope as followers of Christ Listen, our hope is not in science. Our hope is not in our government. Our hope is not in an economic recovery or things getting back to normal. Our hope is in the sovereign plan of God and the promised return of Jesus to take us home to be with him forever. So, thinking back to where I began today, you know what? Powerball is one way people find hope. But for most people, for millions of people, it only ends in disappointment. The odds of winning the the Powerball jackpot are 1 in 292 million in the state of Washington. Not a lot of hope. But we have a blessed hope that is 100% sure. It's a living hope. Jesus is coming back for certain. And we will rise with him to enjoy being part of his kingdom. I'll never get that phone call saying, you know, I I won the lottery since I've never played it. But I can imagine that would be an exciting call to get. But there's something else I would much rather hear. You know what I'd rather hear? I'd rather hear the words, behold, the bridegroom is here. Come on up. Come up here. That's a way better thing to hear then you've won the Powerball. In fact, come up here. That's a power call. There will be a loud shout along with the trumpet of God, and we will be heading to heaven to be with the Lord. So, beloved, live like it. Be ready and watching for him, and let that hope fill you with joy and eager anticipation. So here's next step, number three. I choose to serve Jesus faithfully today. I will serve Jesus faithfully. And friend, he's given you gifts. He's given you abilities and resources and time to serve him until he comes back for you. He wants you to tell others about him as well. He wants you to serve him faithfully so that when you see him, you will hear him say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. So as we think about all of these things that we've talked about today, I want to move now into our time of communion. You know, the Lord's table looks both backwards and forwards. It looks back to our Savior's death, Jesus' death on the cross to pay for our sin, but it also looks forward to the day that we will join Jesus Christ in heaven at the marriage supper of the Lamb. One of the things that Jesus told his disciples at the Last Supper was this. Jesus said, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. We're going to do this again, is what Jesus said to his disciples. And friends, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you and I will do it there as well with him. Beloved, we don't know exactly what the future holds A lot of things are uncertain in our world right now, but we know absolutely who holds the future for us. And for those who have trusted Christ as their Savior, our place right now is to wait expectantly and to serve him faithfully until he comes for us.